0: My denial and my disease was still strong enough that it didn't matter, you know, and as I mentioned, I didn't completely admit my powerlessness yet. I still thought, there was still a little inkling in me that I could control it.
1: Welcome to the Recovery Edgecast. My name is Alfredo and I'm an alcoholic, and today I'm sitting down with Ashley, who I met at the uh, New Hope meeting in uh, Firestone. Just this year, right? Mm-hmm. You had started going there. Mm-hmm. Um, how about you give us your uh, sober date in your home group?
0: Sure. Um, I'm Ashley, i an alcoholic. My sobriety date is um, February 7th of 2016. And my home group is Women in Serenity in Longmont, uh, 9.30 on Saturday mornings.
1: Nice. So what do you do these days? <laughs>
0: Uh, spent a lot of time working on my recovery, (laughs) but, uh, you know, that's the amazing thing about recovery is there's been so many gifts associated with it. You know, um, my life is so much more full than I ever imagined it could be. And that's all thanks to my sobriety and the program.
1: I haven't had a lot of time, um, hearing your shares in meetings because you're, um, Like, you're new to me anyways, you know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah. Um, So this is a real treat for me. How do you feel? Do you feel warmed up?
0: I do, yeah. Okay. Yeah.
1: So why don't you go through and just tell us, you know, what it was like before, what happened, and what it's like now.
0: Okay, sounds good. Um, Yeah, my my sponsor always says before I share my story, um, just to ask God for help, and he will do the rest. So... um, so that's what I've done today. So, um, yeah, I'm actually, I'm an alcoholic. Um, as I mentioned, my sober date's February 7th of 2016. Um, so it's been a little over five years, which still blows my mind sometimes in terms of um, I didn't think I could go more than one hour without drinking, let alone five years. And um, the great thing about this program and about recovery is that things have a way of just continuing to get better as long as I do the next right thing. Um, So I, just to give a little bit on my background, I grew up in in Colorado. Um, I'm the youngest of of three daughters. So I have two older sisters. My parents are still married. Um, I had a great childhood. My parents gave me everything I could ever need or or want. Um, I just, from a very young age, I had... um, uh, what, what is known as stinking thinking. Um, I just, um, had a different reaction to life than I think a lot of, um, other people do that contribute to kind of why I drink in the first place. Um, so, you know, as I mentioned, I had a great childhood. I just, um, you know, there were some kind of key events that happened that I feel like kind of contributed to it, which I won't go into too much details, but, um, Alcoholism does run in my family, although my parents um, never drank. It's aunts and uncles and grandparents and things like that. But um, there were a couple of incidences of tragedy that happened to my sisters. And, you know, so I kind of figured out that my place was to be quiet and stay hidden. Um, I, I just, I didn't, I kind of, I didn't want to be seen. I wanted everything to... On the outside it was everything's okay, everything's good. Um, but on the inside I was so confused, I felt like um I felt like a I like this metaphor of of a duck on the surface of a lake where above the water, you know, I'm calm, cool, collected, sailing along, but underneath the water, where it's hidden, I'm pedaling like crazy. And um that's what I felt like my insides were. And when I had my first drink, um, I was 14, and this is where I really believe that, um, you know, there I have the genetic component to be an alcoholic, absolutely, and it definitely manifested itself right from the very first drink. I reacted differently than my fellows, um, you know, when a lot of people I've I've heard, not from experience, um, will say that they you know, had a drink and then they kind of got tired and they thought, oh, I've had enough. I don't feel right. You know, for me, it was like, this is the first time I felt right in my entire life. And, um, so that first drink when I was 14 was my first drunk, my first blackout drunk, my first throw up, my first wetting the bed. Um, you know, part of my program is to be rigorously honest and that's what it was like. Um, my life moving forward, I, I knew, you know, in high school and college and things like that, that I always wanted to drink more than everyone else. Even at the start of my drinking career, I could see myself, um, you know, I, I always had to have a minimum amount. Anytime everybody else was done drinking, I was never done. And, you know, I kind of, um, over the years, I, I kept quote-unquote control of it. Um, it was more binge drinking than it was, you know, daily and that kind of thing. But, you know, even that word controlling it, it's, it's, you know, that's a warning sign, right? <laughs> what was, who was really being controlled? And, you know, um, after college, I, I got married, I started working, I went to graduate school, um, I had a lot of great friends Um, My husband and I moved around for the last uh, 15 years, so I actually got sober in Illinois, but um, (laughs) we're not there yet. Um, So we lived in D.C. for a couple years um, and then moved to California for about seven years and then um, Illinois. And it was great. You know, my husband and I traveled a lot. We had a great life. He was a one, you know, he is a wonderful husband. But drinking was just always my focus. It was always so much a part of my day-to-day life. And I feel like I didn't necessarily even realize how how big a part it played in my life. Um, but, you know, as, as I got a little bit older, you know, I got to my late 20s, and we were living in um, San Diego at the time, and I kind of feel like the perfect storm happened. Um, obviously, the genetic component, my desire for drinking, and the way that I thought about the world was all, you know, contributing to to my drinking and things like that. But, um, you know, there was a job that I had where alcohol was just very accepted um, to the point where it was go out for lunch with coworkers, everybody would have beers with lunch. They had on-site happy hours for us where they actually provided free alcohol to us. Um, And then I started hanging out with a lot of people that drank like I did. And um, so, like I said, it's, you know, a lot of normal drinkers can be in that situation and they don't turn into alcoholics. But I have had, you know, the genetic component. I had the different reaction um, to drinking. And I had the thinking that always made me feel different and separate from everybody else that just contributed to this. Um, and I, I, think back on it now in what I call sort of my quote unquote maintenance years where, um, drinking was definitely a problem, but it didn't cause me enough consequences yet for me to have to deal with it. So, um, you know, when I was, you know, when I was drinking, I, 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 started the behaviors that really became, uh, scary to me um, drinking and driving became a weekly occurrence. Um, every time I drank, I drank more than I intended. I tried different things in terms of, okay, well, I'll have a glass of water in between every drink, you know? Well, I still had like nine drinks and then I had nine glasses of water. So I spent like that entire party in the bathroom. (laughs) So that didn't work very well. But, um, you know, these kinds of behaviors that just were not normal. They're not normal um, for for people who are not alcoholics. And there were so many things in my life. I mean, no matter what I did, alcohol had to be involved. I mean, basically, if, if my, you know, if our friends didn't drink, I didn't hang out with them. Um, I would manipulate situations so that it would involve drinking. You know, if our Friends would be available on Saturday afternoon and say, oh, let's hang out. What do you want to do? And well, let's go wine tasting or let's go to this new brewery or whatever it would be. And it was never one and done. It was always me getting drunk. I got really scared when, well, I mean, I was, I was scared a lot of the time. As I mentioned, my thinking during this time, until I got in recovery, I looked at the world as if I was wrong and I looked at the world as if I was a victim. And part of that is just, you know, with what happened to my, to my sisters growing up, that effect that I wanted to hide. Um, but that also I, and you know, anything that happened was just why does this have to happen to me? Why does this always happen to me? That kind of thinking that I drank over and I felt powerless over the world and so drinking took away that worry and and that that feeling so after it started to become a daily habit um in my you know my late 20s as I mentioned I remember thinking oh I'll grow up you know surely I won't be drinking like this when I'm 30 like this old woman who's 30 you know but like it says in the big book over time I got worse never better Any control that I tried to have over it was futile, but really a turning point came when some of our friends and my husband and I went on a trip to uh, Cabo San Lucas and it was there that we were at an all-inclusive resort and one of my friends that was there, we were of course drinking the first night we got there and then the next morning we get up and we go to the buffet and everything and I was feeling sick, of course, and my friend said, oh, well, have a mimosa with me or at least a Bloody Mary or something. And I was just, no, I'm, I feel sick. I can't do it. And she said, I promise you, you will feel better. And so I did. And I drank every moment of that trip for the rest of the five days that we were there. And that really started my around-the-clock morning drinking to the point where... It was 2014 um, that I had been drinking around the clock for several months at that point. My my husband had been, of course, expressing his concerns for several years, honestly. But in particular at this time, he really was worried about me. And I, I don't know how I still had a job. Um, as I mentioned, I... I had to drink at that point. There was no choice. I would shake. You know, I'm a scientist and, and a lot of my job is doing very technical, precise movements. And the shaking of my hands was just so humiliating. And I couldn't eat without drinking. It got to the point where I started throwing up blood in the morning and... I was scared. I was absolutely scared. When people talk about the four horsemen, you know, and terror is one of them. That's how I felt. And I, so in 2014, I drove myself to the emergency room. And at this point, when I was drinking, I wasn't getting drunk even. I was just trying to, to keep steady, to stop the shaking, to stop the nausea, all that kind of thing. And So when I got to the ER, of course, they admitted me, and I thought I was having a heart attack. And so they hooked me up to these machines. They gave me an IV and everything. And then, of course, I had to call my husband and tell him why I was there. And my husband, I will never forget just the look on his face of helplessness. And the thing about that is that I really thought I wasn't hurting anyone but myself. But when I was at the hospital, um, as I mentioned, I was, I was, you know, just pale and sweaty, and I was down to like 105 pounds because I couldn't eat, and I was in this hospital gown with this IV, and I, I looked like I was about 50 years old, and at the time I was 31, and or 32, and I had my husband take a picture of me, and. I still have that picture. The crazy thing about this, I still didn't stop drinking after that. Which if anybody can describe the insanity of the the, the disease, that is it. That's absolutely it. So over the next about year and a half, I struggled. At this point, I told my family that I had a problem. Again, I wasn't living in state, so there was a lot that they just didn't see. And that's where it really, I, I started going to meetings, but I was not, I had no intention of stopping drinking at that point. I felt like I was incapable. I felt like I was going to fail. I thought recovery was for everyone else and not for me. And a lot of that I feel like is I was, I was in denial um, that this disease would actually kill me. I kind of felt like since I was young-ish, you know, that I would have, I would have been fine. I felt like it would get better, you know, after all the evidence told me that it would just get worse. But really when everything came to a head, so at this point, my husband and I were living in Illinois. We'd been there about six months and I got drunk yet again. And I was just in that dark place that you know other alcoholics. I feel like had know so well, and I wanted to to kill myself. Um, my husband's in law enforcement. We have firearms in our house, and the therapist that I was seeing at the time, she actually reached out to my husband a few weeks before and said, "I don't know if she has access to firearms, but she should not." So my husband um, changed the code on our safe where we keep our firearms, and that. My therapist and my husband saved my life that day because I do believe had I been able to get into that safe, I wouldn't be here today to tell my story. Um, When I realized I couldn't get into the safe, I, you know, I was screaming and sobbing and my husband said, are you, are, are you, are you ready to ask for help? And by that he meant, you know, go to treatment because at that point, you know, I needed out, you know, outpatient treatment was not going to be enough. Meetings were, were not going to be enough at that point. I, I really needed to just get out of myself and out of my head and completely, you know, break the cycle and everything. And so that night I, I did call a rehab facility and they said, we have a bed for you on Tuesday. So, um, and this was a Saturday. And so I had to spend two days not drinking before I got to treatment. But this is the thing. And this is where my story becomes an absolute miracle because I was never, as I mentioned, I'm a scientist. I, at at times I took pride in being an atheist. I really did. So I was not into the God thing at all, to put it very mildly. But that night after I had called the treatment center, And I thought to myself, I'm not going to make it. I'm not going to make it until I can get there on Tuesday. And so I asked my husband to get down on his knees with me. And this is the only time this has (laughs) happened before or since, but we prayed together. And I, the only thing I said that was even coherent was God, please help me. So the next day, February 7th, 2016 is my first full day sober, um, Anybody in in Denver knows that that's the last time that the Denver Broncos won the Super Bowl. So there you go. My sobriety date is Super Bowl Sunday. Um, And I made it. I I went to several meetings that day. I went to several meetings the Monday after. And then Tuesday I checked in. It was the best decision I ever made. Um, First of all, it was the first time that I started attending meetings and being open, honest, and willing it's the first time I opened my ears and actually listened. And as I like to say, it's the first time I came all the way in and sat all the way down. And I do believe that my God moment, my spiritual awakening that night is the reason why. Because as I mentioned before, I tried everything. And I was beyond human aid. So after I, I spent 22 days in treatment, um, I got um, a sponsor... And I was just so ready to start my recovery. And that program really put me in, it gave me the best foundation to then start attending meetings and doing my step work. And so I was so happy to be, to be out. I, when my husband came to pick me up from treatment, I remember telling um, my counselor there that, you know, I was very disappointed that my husband didn't bring Guinness with him in the car. And then I had to tell her that Guinness is the name of my dog. It's not beer. <laughs> so they were concerned. They weren't going to let me leave. But then they figured it out. Um, and the sense of freedom I got, of course, you know, being out of treatment because they, you know, you can only have one cup of coffee a day. The, the horror. Um, but the freedom I got starting my recovery. Because that to me, if I think about, if I could sum up my sobriety and recovery in one word, it's freedom. Alcohol was my master. I had no choices except to do what it told me. I had to drink. And I don't need to do that anymore. I don't need to, and I don't want to. And that's a gift that I wasn't expecting. There's so much in sobriety that I just wasn't expecting. So many, so many gifts. The fullness of my life and my experiences now. I would have never, I would have been selling myself short had I not become an active member of AA, and I'm so glad that I have that. Um, So after I got out of treatment, as I mentioned, I got a sponsor who took me through the steps. Uh, I got to work, honestly. Um, I, I started getting involved in service work, which was huge. I became a GSR representative for one of my meetings, which blew my mind, the amount of time and energy and selfless giving that I see of people in this program to other people that are suffering. Um, in terms of, you know, my relationship with my husband, I can't, I I can't say it enough that my husband, I mean, anybody who lives with active alcoholism can't be, I mean, you're going to be profoundly affected. And for him to stay by my side is really, it's its intense. It really is. Because um, he went through everything I went through, but he had to do it sober.
1: Early in your marriage, did he marry you knowing you were an alcoholic? Or was this something that was discovered a little later? I, I mean, I guess I don't know when you started to really get into the drinking.
0: Yeah, so he, no, to answer your question, he didn't know. We got married very young. We were both 22. Okay. So my alcoholism developed during our marriage. Mm. He's definitely a normie. He's one of those that could take it or leave it, so I just don't understand that. (laughs) But, yeah, so he had to see the whole progression.
1: Mm. Was there a point where he may have said, like, I think you're going overboard?
0: Yes, many times. Mm. Many times, and I ignored it. I thought it was because, you know... He he's a he's a law enforcement officer. He's a, he's a goody two shoes. He's a teetotaler. You know he doesn't understand when anybody with eyes could have seen I had a problem.
1: Tell us about the time you took a picture of yourself. Yeah. Why?
0: So, as I mentioned, that was in 2014. So a little bit before I I was able to to get into recovery, and I was right at that place where. I was, I, I was getting desperate. You know, I talk about sometimes the gift of desperation because I did, I, I, I didn't get a DUI. I, you know, I, I didn't end up getting arrested for any reason, but my, my bottom was very low physically and relationship wise. My husband, as I mentioned, was scared and at his wit's end and on the, you know, edge of, of leaving me. And I, you know, lo- logically, I knew in my mind all of those things were going to happen. But my denial and my disease was still strong enough that it didn't matter, you know. And as I mentioned, I didn't completely admit my powerlessness yet. I still thought there was still a little inkling in me that I could control it. And that just wasn't the case. And that's why I took that picture, was. Honestly, to try to convince myself, I thought if I can go back and look at this picture, then that'll be the motivation. You know, I thought it was like putting a picture of a slim you on the fridge and it would stop you from, you know, (laughs) keep you on a diet. Mm -hmm. But it just, it didn't work that way.
1: Um, I asked because I did the same thing. (laughs) I had one of those days and I was like, this is it. I got to take a picture of myself because I feel horrible and i looked horrible yeah but it wasn't enough no you know I, I still have that awful picture somewhere
0: i do too and it's it's quite staggering and i think i mentioned before with a lot of this you know those are the kinds of things that you know people talk about having their bottom right in front of their face so they remember where they came from and for me I, you know i mentioned I wasn't necessarily afraid to die and that kind of thing because I was young when I got sober. I was, well, I was throwing up blood, so I probably wasn't that healthy, but um, I was able to get my health back. And so what scares me today is not dying. What scares me is how much longer that could have gone on. That misery, that hamster wheel of just darkness. And I would have... You know, I, like I mentioned, I, I really thought that I was only hurting myself, but what would that have done to my husband? You know, at the time when I was considering killing myself, I thought, oh, he'll be fine. He'll just get a new wife, you know, just plug, plug in a new woman there. Like it's not, it's not the way it works.
1: Single scientists might might be hard, (laughs) might be hard to find one. (laughs) You felt powerless over the world, you had said. Mm -hmm. What's your outlook on the world today now as five years sober?
0: Oh, gosh. Well, I'm still powerless over the world, but I don't feel like a victim anymore. I don't feel like the world is out to get me. You know, it's not. I'm not that important. But the power that I do have is my, I have the choice of how I can react to things that happen in my life. I have the choice now to think positively or negatively and to just accept the world and people, places, and things as they are, not the way I wanted them to be. And once I stopped that struggle, that constant trying to dictate everything around me without even realizing I was doing it, I don't need to do that anymore. And the freedom I have of just getting out of that way of thinking and the serenity that I get from that is huge. And I, I, have so many gifts of recovery. I mean, my, my relationship, my, my relationship with my family, my friends, my ability to, to actually be there for people, you know, to show up when they ask me to, because that wasn't who I was before. And you know, I, I, that extends into so many areas of my life. I think about, you know, the kind of employee that I am now. And yeah, I think about I might be at work, you know, calculating molarity or something. And now it's it comes easily to me. And I remember the first time I did that when I was sober. And it's like, oh my God, I'm a genius. But then it's like, no, I'm just I can think clearly when I'm not pouring poison into my brain every day.
1: You're not a genius? <laughs>
0: Well, maybe a little All right,
1: That's <laughs> Just keep it on the down low <laughs> okay so you kind of answered this earlier anyways but you know I want to ask anyways if, if you could sum this up in a sentence or two you gave us the word freedom was a one-word summary of your story dish it out in a sentence or two your story
0: my story is a very lost girl found spirituality and fellowship and meaning in recovery. And I i don't want the fellowship to be taken lightly because that is a massive part of my program. It's a massive part of my recovery. Is My sponsor has given so much to me. And I remember when she said, you know, you'll pay it forward someday. And you're helping me even more than I'm helping you. And I remember thinking, I don't think that's true. But thank God I don't have to pay you because I couldn't afford you. But it's true. Now that I've been sponsoring people, I learn so much more from them than I could have ever taught them. And the fellowship in this program, I, I say this sometimes in meetings where inside the meeting, I feel like is the real world as opposed to outside of meetings. Because inside the meeting, there are people there that see the real me. I can be honest. When people ask me how I am, I can say, ah, oh, not so good. And they listen. And they, they show me what to do next. And so it's a constant learning aspect for me. And, I mean, I the great thing about recovery is, you know, and, and I see it in others. But you can continue to grow and learn and expand, you know, your spiritual life. And so I... I'm just grateful that that opportunity is there. And I'm so grateful that the people that were in the rooms were there for me when I needed to come in. And so that's one thing that I want to do for other people is I want to be there for the next person that comes in that is lost and scared and terrified and shaking (laughs) and all the things that I was. And I definitely, you know, I've been very lucky. I've got this, you know, special group of girls in Illinois that, that saw me in the very beginning and I've got a very special group of girls here in Colorado that took me under their wing right away and those are the things that I have in my life because of this program
1: now if you could give yourself a piece of advice say <laughs> in either day one or year one of your recovery what you would know, you tell yourself
0: I know it sounds trite but just keep showing up yeah keep showing up um probably listen a little bit more at first. But (laughs) yeah, I mean, that's the thing about recovery is that anybody can get it. This program is for everybody. And anybody can be successful in this program. You just suit up, show up, do the next right thing. And I can be happily sober, which is something I never thought would would happen.
1: Thanks, Ashley, for sharing your experience, strength, and hope with the Recovery EdgeCast. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Remember, you can listen to more at therecoveryedgecast.com. We're on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, wherever you like to check out your podcasts. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.